0: Well, turn your Bibles this morning to Job, chapter thirty-two. Whoa, it's on. I could hear it. Um, let's see if we can make sure this is working. We'll do it this way. So a few weeks ago, I was. Uh, I came home. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I told my wife, I said, I don't know if I can preach in Job anymore. I'm done. I think I'm going to take a break. In my heart, thinking I'm never going back to Job. Um, and, you know, a, you know, how the Spirit works and how God moves in our hearts is in some ways mysterious, right? And it was as though a voice said to me, I may use those words circumspectly, but it was as though it said to me, why would you stop now? I'm getting ready to start talking. And I was like, ah, oh, that wasn't convicting at all, right? So, but, but truly encouraging. So we come to this moment with this guy, Elihu. And, um, you know, when you go through Bible college, seminary, all this, you're required to read through um, the Bible. I'm, I'm, I'm actually working through a Bible reading program with my youngest right now. And um, he asked me the other day, Dad, have you ever read through the Bible? Uh, and going through classes, like, to be honest with you, you have to read through the Bible more times than I can count from beginning to end. And, um, and then an own personal study time and um, did a program once where read th- you read through the Bible in 60 days, another one you read through 30 days. And, and I'll be honest with you, every time I came to this portion of Job, I certainly thought of Elihu in a particular way. And Elihu is the youngest guy that shows up. He hasn't been mentioned in the story up until this point. And you get five chapters of this guy. Like, he speaks more in a more condensed way than anybody else other than God in the book. And I always saw Elihu as kind of the epitome of all the friends, because you get in this mode, you're used to the friends talking a certain way, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, uh, the terrible trifecta, the the corrupt counselors, the, the losers. And I always thought of Elihu the same way, and so to be very fair with you, to be very honest with you, I would skim a lot of what Elihu said, because I was like, I've already had 30 chapters of this nonsense, I don't need another five. And I want to start the sermon this morning by asking the question, is Elihu actually good or bad? And, and you know, spoiler alert, he's actually good. And, and I would actually propose this morning, I'm going to walk through and I'll prove that, and then we're going to see some wonderful things Elihu says. Elihu, we've had three terrible friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. I just love saying his names at this point. Um, if I ever buy goats that are hard-headed, the ugliest ones, that's, that's, that's who's getting named, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, right? Um, these guys have just spouted and they've done all the terrible things that you should never say and behave towards someone that's suffering. It's super convicting because I guarantee you every one of us in this room have done some or all of those things at some point to people. Elihu is what we should do. Elihu is the representation in the book of Job for how we should actually minister to someone as a person, not knowing everything about their story, not knowing everything that's going on. There's massive limits to our comprehension or understanding. When we're working with someone that's wrestling with puzzling pain who's suffering for things they didn't deserve how do we relate to them elihu becomes for us in the book of job the picture of how we do that and and so i think just as a main takeaway this morning to help us when you speak to god when you speak for god to the sufferer it must be with love and truth because god is both love and truth first john chapter 4 tells us that god is love jesus says i'm the way the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. We're told in Ephesians 4, right, to speak the truth in love one to another that might build the body up. And he's not talking about numeric growth or building. He's talking about spiritual growth and building because he says to the, you might come to a point of perfection is the way it's commonly translated. It means maturity, so that you might grow up. And so when we come into the life of a sufferer, this is profoundly difficult. It, it's, it's You're dealing with someone that's tender, someone that's already hurt. It's um, to be honest, it's like hugging a porcupine. That's a phrase I use a lot. That's what I think of Jesus, John chapter 4, dealing with the woman at the well. You're, you're hugging someone that's really hurt. It's it's like that time I was washing my car when I was a teenager and my, our dog ran out of the house um, running to me. She loved me, and she, she did one of those blow by you, do a U-turn in the street to come back, and when she did the U-turn in the street, a car hit her, R- literally right in front of me. It did not kill her instantaneously, but it it, it hurt her. Badly enough that we had to put her down. Maybe that's why I don't do pets. Right? That might be why I'm like scarred, right? I got PTSD. I don't know. Um, but I remember I went to pick her up. This dog had never, never um, mistreated me, never bit me. Mm. But she had a broken pelvis. And so when that happened, her reaction to that was to snap at me. And she bit me. She was wounded, and she's hurt. Her biting did not have to do with me. It had to do with her pain. And so loving sufferers and picking her up and trying to hold her carefully while at the same time I'm not getting bit by her is really hard to do. And and so how do we speak love and truth to people that are suffering? So there is this debate, though, among commentators. Is Elihu good or bad? One side says, and they're about split. If you read commentaries, they're about split on it. One group says that Elihu is the epitome of the three friends. So we have five chapters of a summation of all the bad counsel. Um, Elihu believes more of the same do good, get good, do bad, get bad. So Job, you're getting what you deserve. And he sets the stage for God to talk because God shows up and vindicates Job. That's one side. It's not the side I take. Uh, On the other side, it says that Elihu begins to represent what humanity, or a godly person, a righteous person, a loving person, a good friend, what a good friend says to someone that's suffering, and how they bring to bear hard truths that a sufferer needs to hear. And so he begins to be this person that points our own hearts to receive truth, and, and he's almost like an ancient form of John the Baptist who prepares the way, or an Elijah who prepares the way to finally hear from God, and that that's why Elihu is here and as I've already let the cat out of the bag, I believe that's exactly who he is. And so what we can do in chapter 32 is kind of get an overview of this guy and start to see who is Elihu. Um, and, and understand, and, and I'll just use it as a way to kind of prove that that's, that's how I view him um, and why I come to understand why he is. First of all, we see his heritage. Let's just look in chapter 32 of Job. He says this, verse 1, so these three men ceased to answer Job. Because he was righteous in his own eyes, that tells us they stopped talking because they were fed up and irritated with him. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered. And he goes on from there. First thing we want to see is that it's really unusual for him to be given a heritage. Nobody else in the book gets this kind of heritage treatment. Um, the friends aren't. The friends are said. This is Eliphaz of So place, and this is uh, Zophar from this region, and this is Bildad from this region. But but Elihu gets this whole heritage moment. Heritage in the ancient literature was a way of showing honor and respect, and so it jumps out of the off the page at us already. If we were if we were ancient Eastern readers, we'd be like, Whoa, what's different with this guy? For you and I, we would easily read over it, but. Understanding the text and the literature and the way it works is this is a way of kind of shining a new light and saying this guy's who's about to talk is different from everybody else. The fact that we're given his name and his father's name stands out to us. Particularly names matter a lot in the Bible. Um, we think of Abram becoming Abraham Sarai, becoming Sarah, and we think of these examples where God changes someone's name to give a new identity. Names matter. Elihu's name literally means he is God, and his father's name means God is blessed. Both of those names set the stage for what Elihu's going to do, because what Elihu's going to do is for five chapters is say, let's move the conversation off of Job and his suffering, and let's move the conversation to God and his glory. Which is exactly what God is then going to say. Look at my glory. And so this is going to fall in line with his approach. So his heritage means something to us. What does it mean? Secondarily, we see his age and his authority. I've already read here that he is very young. Uh, he says it himself in verse six: "I am young in years, and you are aged." That's not. <laughs> that's not disrespectful. He's not saying, "Hey, old man, listen." That's that's not what he's doing. Um, you know, hey, here's your letter from AARP, and I got something to say, but. But really, he's young by his own standards, and he's young in relation to these men. So we don't know how young Elihu is, to be honest with you. Um, if we wanted to apply Greek culture, which this isn't, right? It's a couple thousand years before Greek culture. Greek culture, the, the line was 40. If you, when you crossed 40, you were viewed as an older man or older woman. Um, you had enough life experience to have some wisdom to speak. This is ancient. We, we can't apply that here. We're, so we're not sure. We do know that Job is probably um, in his 70s. He's, he's no spring chicken himself, he's been around a while, right? He, he, he's lived life, Seven, he's in his 70s. Eliphaz is old enough to be Job's dad, he says. Um, so he's at least 90s or above. The other three friends, or the other two friends, Zophar and Bildad, also seem to be older, as old as, if not older than Job. And so how old is Elihu? He's, he's young enough to have kept silent for a long time. He's young enough to feel like, I can't speak out of my experience I need some other source of authority than just that I've lived a long time on the earth. Look down in verses 8 and 9, he begins to tell us what authority from which he speaks. Verse 7, actually, start back in verse 7. I said, Let days speak, many years teach wisdom. His perspective was, These guys have lived a long time. I'm sure they have something better to say than I have. Let me listen to them first. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise nor the age to understand what is right. I I don't know about you folks, but at 48, I feel like the older I get, the less I know. Um, and, I, and I run across other people, I'm like, they've forgotten more than I'm ever going to learn. For sure. Sometimes it's little tips and tricks that you don't even realize you know. Um, I remember one time there was a hinge went bad on one of our doors or something, and I was trying to show my boys how to fix it, and, and I went and I took the screw out, screw stripped out, went, and went into the kitchen, and to my workbench, got some Elmer's wood glue and a whole pack of toothpicks. And they at me like, what are you doing? I jammed wood glue in it and jammed all these little toothpicks in it, let it dry, cut off the end of it, run a new screw, and the Elmer's glue and the toothpicks works like you just filled the hole with wood. It's work. They're like, you're amazing. And, of course, I said, yes, I am. I am Bob Vila. I am this old house. My grandpa showed me to do that. I don't know how long years ago, right? So, so there's a perspective that says if you're going to talk to somebody that's going through a tough time, that's hurt, that's wounded, that's suffering, surely someone who's lived a, long, a lot of life would know more than I would. And presumptively, yes, but the problem is this. If you've lived through life, and even though you've gone through suffering, if we haven't processed it biblically, it may have been we've learned how to cope with it but it may be that we haven't coped with it in a righteous way. And so age alone is no guarantee. He says, no, what we need is some speaking from God the Almighty. If we go down towards the end of the chapter, you see him come back to it again in verse 17. I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I'm full of words. The Spirit within me constrains me. What he's saying is, I'm actually speaking with the authority of God. Now, he's not the first guy in the book to say this. Eliphaz said he had this dream, and as we saw, it was actually a demonic nightmare. But Elihu believes that what he's about to say is from God. Now, that helps us as as students of the Word, because when someone says, I'm speaking for God, what we then can do is take everything they say, run it through the filter of the Word to tell us, are they speaking for God or not? And if what drops out isn't from doesn't match the word. They're not talking for God. Eliphaz did not talk for God. I'm going to contend to you, Elihu does. And you don't find error in what he says. He says, I will answer with my share. I will declare with my opinion. I'm full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent. Like new wineskins ready to burst. They put um, freshly squeezed grape uh, juice into a wineskin, and it was really a... Uh, made from a sheep or goat and as it fermented the gases produced it would swell and swell and swell and um if you need to let those gases out at some point let it cure i am i'm not a i'm not a winemaker i don't understand all this but that's his point he's trying to give them an image like "I, i can't hold it in any longer i must speak that i may find relief i must open my lips and answer i will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person for i don't know how to flatter Else my maker would soon take me away. You know, a flatterer is the kind of person that will say something to your face that they never say behind your back. And a gossip is someone who says something behind your back that they never say to your face. Next time someone says something to you about somebody, ask them, have you talked to them about it? And so what Elihu is basically saying is I have integrity. I have integrity here. How do I speak then? I'm going to say something true. And so he speaks not from his age, older, not even from his age younger necessarily, but from authority of God. Uh, thirdly, he's not included with this rotten bunch. He's basically been there a long time. We know he's been there a long time because he's listening to all these guys said. But he's not included with them. When the friends show up, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, we're told all three are there. But Elihu isn't named among them. On top of that, when you get to the end of the book, when God rebukes the friends, he doesn't rebuke Elihu at all. He doesn't correct him. He says, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, you need to bring me, Job needs to sacrifice and pray for you. You bring sacrifices, Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. He doesn't include Elihu. Why is Elihu not included with the rotten bunch at the beginning? Why is he not included at the judgment at the end? Because what he says isn't wrong. He's not to be thought of by us that way. And then his, his attitude. Angry is how he's described. Verses 1 through 3, he says, I'm angry, burn with anger. Eli, verse 2, the son of Barakul, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. I'm explain that in just a moment. He burned with anger at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. Verses 10 through 16, he's speaking directly to the three friends. And so you know it's out of this heart of, of frustration, irritation, anger. He says, therefore I say, listen to me. How do we know? It's not as clear in our Bible. Sometimes I wish the, our translations would help us a little bit. He switches throughout his chapter, uh, throughout his speech that starts here in 32, goes for five chapters or six chapters. He switches between singular and plural pronouns as he's addressing people. So that's how we can actually tell who he's talking to. It's not as clear for us because we use you as singular or plural. But here he's talking to the friends. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. None of their nonsense, Job, you deserve this, dealt with Job's problems. None of their condemnation was helpful. None of it was true. Beware lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me. I will not answer him with your speeches. Now that's very important, just a quick reminder. Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad were irritated and angry with Job, and they took it as personal attacks, Job's questions about God. Job's saying, why God? Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad take that personal. Elihu says, that's not an attack against me. His beef with God is not on me. We've already seen that sometimes we go wrong when we think, We have to be God's defender, and we take it personal. doesn't mean we're not speaking truth, and we'll see Elihu do this. We'll see him speak truth. But Elihu is distanced from taking this as a personal attack. It's really important. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand and answer no more? They say, no. I'm not like them. I'm not with them. You guys have blown it, you took it personal, you've attacked Job, you're wrong, you give no answer, Uh uh-uh. Talk to the hand, I'm not listening. Job shouldn't listen to you either. And so he sets himself apart. Now, let's go back, when he says he's angry because Job justified himself instead of God. In other words, what Elihu is beginning to set the stage for is this. Job has become consumed by his sufferings. And becoming consumed by his sufferings, Job has begun to drift from the kinds of things he said at the beginning. Naked I came from the womb, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why would I curse God? Why should I take good things from God's hand and not bad things from God's hand? All that faith and that steadfastness, as the trial has lengthened, Job has begun to drift from that. And Job's sole focus has become, I don't deserve this. And Elihu is angry because what he's saying is, Job, in going down the dark hole of your suffering, you have begun to make this all about you and not about God anymore. That's a hard thing to say to somebody. Now that's what he's believing. What we'll be able to see in the next chapter is how you actually approach someone to say those kinds of things. You know, I think if we're honest, any of us in this room, and I've got to believe we've all lived life enough that we've suffered, we understand the temptation in the midst of suffering to make it all about us. And so there's this fine line, right? There's this fine, It feels like a super fine line. You feel like you're walking on a tightrope in the middle of a pitch black room. You can't even see in front of you when you're in the midst of deep grief. And you know there's this fine line that I need to somehow process through my grief and grow through my grief and learn through my grief and sorrow and God doesn't expect me to just be better tomorrow. And walk by faith in him. But then there's this other side that wants to make it all about us. And it just hurts so bad. Life just stinks. And it's just hard. And what Elihu is saying is, Job, you've begun to drift. And you've begun to make it about you and not about God. His anger toward his friends has everything to do with their accusations of Job being unjust. And Job is a liar. And Job has deceived. And Job has stolen money from people. And Job has done all these wicked things. And that's why you're suffering. And Elihu doesn't agree. And that takes us down to the content portion. And I'm going to walk a very fine line with you here, but this line is really important. Sometimes little things matter a lot. Like grammar. I'm an Oxford comma kind of guy. right? I'm the kind of guy that thinks a comma belongs in front of and. I just am. And grammar matters. And matters a lot when you're writing papers and submitting them, I can tell you that. And so the difference here is going to seem subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. And here's the difference. Job's, the, the, the terrible trifecta, I would call them, the corrupt counselors, they believe Job is suffering because Job has sinned and he deserves a suffering. That's what they think. Elihu believes Job is a righteous sufferer who didn't deserve it it's puzzling pain but in the midst of his suffering he has begun to sin now that that feels subtle but it's a huge difference it's the difference between if a person was wrongly convicted. If the police showed up at your house today, they arrested you for some murder, they take you away, you're tried, you're convicted, you're sent away, you didn't do it. You weren't there, you didn't do it, you don't know why they have you, you don't know why they arrested you, you don't know what's going on, the legal system seems broke to you, you're an innocent sufferer, you're there and you're thrown into gen pop and in the, when you're in gen pop, a guy attacks you and you hit him back and you hurt him and in the process of this fight, if you're trying to defend yourself in prison, uh, you, you go overboard and you actually... Kill this man. You were an innocent sufferer, had no business being in there, but in the process of being in the nonsense, you overstepped, and now you did sin. That's radically different than the serial killer, rightly found, rightly convicted, whining, saying he doesn't deserve life. It feels subtly different, but it's radically different. And what Elihu is saying is, Job, you didn't deserve to be here, but this is where you're at. But in the midst of where you're at, Job, there's some ways you started to think wrongly and speak wrongly, and I want to correct that. But I'm not like these guys. I'm not saying you deserve to be here. It's a subtle but critical difference. There are key things then that this frees Elihu to do. Elihu is then free to begin to address questions that Job has. Questions like, Job makes the claim, God is not talking to me. God is silent to me. God, you are not speaking into my hurt, and into my sorrow, and into my suffering. And one of the very first things, we'll see this in just a moment, Elihu's going to say, no, you're wrong, Job. God is actually talking to you a lot right now. Job is going to say that God is unjust. Elihu's going to correct that. God, Job is going to say that it's pointless to live righteous. is going to correct that. And, jo- and we understand this. Job's sorrow because we've looked at it for chapter after chapter his point is why should i live righteous if i suffer anyway and god must not be just and god's not talking to me and we see all of this i don't i why should i even live i don't even want to live anymore god doesn't have a right to do these things experiencing puzzling pain doesn't free us from potential sins while we're suffering Satan's temptations came the fiercest into Jesus' life when Jesus was already physically suffering and had spent 40 days fasting and in prayer. Then Satan shows up and, and there is an argument, was he tempted him all along? But the key moment in the Gospels, then he shows up and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread and God's not going to take care of you, but I'll lift you up and I'll raise you up because he's in the midst of his suffering and Satan knows that when we're hurting, we're weak. And I'm not even ashamed to admit it. Because at the end of the day, I'm a human, aren't you? It's okay that you're weak. But it does mean we're vulnerable. Unjust sufferers, puzzling pain, people who do not deserve what they're going through can and do sin in the midst of their suffering, though, at times. Secondarily, Elihu lays out everybody. I mean, Elihu puts everybody on blast. And you'll see this in a moment. He is so tender towards Job. But man, he rails on the friends. And apparently there's a whole crowd that has shown up to listen to this. Because the way he speaks is so broadly, you can tell he's talking to more than just the three friends. While we've had hints of other people being there, Elihu's speech lets us know there's this crowd around them. All of that sets the stage even clearer to know when God splits the heavens and starts talking, everybody hears what God has to say about Job. So, is Elihu bad or good? Is he a clown or a counselor? Is he a provoker or a prophet? Elihu is a living illustration of how to speak truth to the sufferer who is drifting into sin in their suffering. He's the golden example of how to speak truth in love. Truth without love is like a harsh sound or worse, demonic speech, First Corinthians 13 tells us. It does more harm than good. Love without truth is a lie that pats people on the head and gives band-aids for broken bones. Elihu seeks to point everybody's heart back to God. He's like an older version of Elijah or John the Baptist. He's paving the way for God. Elihu's heritage says trust him. His source of authority says listen because God's going to talk to you. His distance from judgment from the other three says that God is not angry with him. His anger matches what God gets angry about when God starts talking. And his content actually will mirror God's speech later. Elihu is a good guy we should listen to very carefully. And so let's listen to him. What are some lessons? We got three lessons from Elihu this morning. And they're gold. They're gold. Let's give you a heads up. First of all, speak to the person, not the problem. Speak to the person first, not the problem. You know what I mean by that? You ever felt like just a number? Um, (laughs) I'm thankful the DMV has changed somewhat um back when i was a kid when you went to the dmv it felt like you were you had stepped i don't know behind the iron curtain you would go get this number and 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 you just didn't even know if the number would ever even be called you, you go and you pluck a number out of the machine you know and you look at it and it's number 472 and you look up to see what number they're on they're on number three you're like somebody put a new role in here or something right like something's wrong next number four and you're like oh boy Look, I'm not Roman Catholic, but suddenly I believe in purgatory, because this is bad. And you're just a number. You ever been to a doctor's office and you just feel like a number? A file? Not a person? Eliphaz, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, Job's three terrible, terrible counselors, talk to Job like he was a number. You might even remember way back in some of the early chapters, they're treating it like it's this theological ivory tower argument about suffering while job's sitting there with 10 dead children a wife who's abandoned him covered in boils and maggots and they're having a theological debate elihu doesn't address him that way you know when we go to a doctor it's not that we don't want good treatment but but if you even look on reviews of doctors they talk about their bedside manner why? Because we all intuitively know this. The best care for us, whether it's soul care or physical care, will come from someone who is moved by understanding and compassion. We've loved Beth Ann's surgeon and her oncologist. Wow, have those were they good? I, I'm telling you, they are like heroes to me. Jimmy Wells and Jeff Libby are amazing doctors. I'd recommend them to anybody, anybody, anywhere, anytime. Because they cared. They never, ever treated us like a number. They would sit and, and ask. and um, You wait so long in on the oncologist. They're never on time. I think the shortest time we ever wait, waited past our normal appointment time, the shortest, was about 50 minutes. The norm was about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. And so you know the doctor's running behind. And he would come and sit. And even this last appointment, we sat there, and it was a great appointment. But he just said, how are you doing? And How are your kids doing? And did you guys have a good summer vacation? And, we, and you're like... He could have walked in and said, Labs look good. See you in three months. But he cared, right? He, like, we want somebody to care. It's one of the reasons people really struggle when they move, finding new doctors. You want to find a doctor that cares for you. Elihu sees Job, not some theoretical, theological debate. Verse, chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue of my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. How do you do this? Let me give you a couple ways. First of all, be humble. Be humble. That's what he does. He says, I'm just like you. (laughs) I'm just, weigh my words. I love what he says. He basically says, check my words out. I'm going to speak with integrity, but I'm not offended if you want to run my words through the grid of what you know theologically. Go for it. It's good. It'd be good for you to do that. He says, I've been pinched off by a piece of clay. I don't think of myself as better than you. He isn't speaking from a perspective that says, I'm further down the road. Let me drag you along. Have you ever felt that way with people that you feel like a project and a problem for them to solve and not a person to help? Boy, I'm ashamed to admit that I've treated people that way. You know, you can come up with all kinds of excuses. Well, life was really busy, and I felt pressured, or I felt overburdened, and so I just, I treated their suffering like one plus one equals two. Read these three verses and feel better tomorrow. And that's that's not what suffering's like, is it? And so he looks at Job and he and he considers his own heart from a from a perspective of humility you can tell that Elihu is looking at Job and he's thinking like Galatians 6 says if you see someone overburdened in sin even then consider yourself because you could do the same thing it's very clear that Elihu is looking at Job and he's thinking this man I bet if my life got wrecked like Job's I'd probably respond the same way that's not excusing Job's wrong responses but it is owning the reality of his own heart I'm just like you Job I'm a man I'm a man that's all I am It's a humble acknowledgement that he is not beyond him. It's a heart that in Matthew Gospel of Matthew has considered the log in his own eye before he goes after the thorn, the small speck in Job's eye. He invites Job to stand. He invites Job to keep talking. Remember, Job has finished and said, that's all i got to say. And Elihu says, no, I want to hear more from you, Job. That's so contradictory from the other three who said, I'm done listening to you. Elihu says, please, Job, Please, this is not an antagonistic, let's get in the ring and have this fight theologically. This is the mindset that says, I want to listen to you. He isn't on mission to silence Job, but to have a conversation with Job. He is being quick to hear and slow to speak. Second of all, be careful. Be careful as you deal with the sufferer. Don't just be humble, be careful. He envisions Job's understandable fears now that Elihu is starting to talk. And he speaks into them. Job is overburdened, and Elihu refuses to add to that burden. Verse 7 Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. He sees Job as heavily weighed down, and he does not want to add one more weight to it. My father-in-law has one of those weighted blankets. I don't know if you've seen these things. It's a blanket. It's exactly what it sounds like. You buy a blanket and it's weighted. And so this thing has like its beads in it or whatever, and it like weighs like 12 pounds. I'm like, man, that, that just gives me claustrophobia thinking about it. He loves it, man. He snuggles down in that, particularly Sunday afternoon naps. That's, that's his go to. LU understands that, that things, weights that might comfort some, wrongly applied would crush another. You would never lay that blanket on an infant, you'd smother them. Right? There's a place and a time for weights. And, and so he says, Job, I know you feel burdened, overburdened, and so I'm, I know that you're going to be afraid that I'm going to put more on you, and I'm not. I'm not going to put more on you. It tells us that Elihu is being circumspect. He's being wise in, in the words he's going to use. He's weighing them before he puts them on Job's shoulders. What weights he will put on Job arrive with grace, and, and, and grace that says, Job, this isn't more for you to lift. This is more for you to turn your heart to Jesus. Don't add to the burden of the hurting with ill-timed, ill-conceived, and error-laden statements. But speak truth and love that ministers grace to the hearers. And so we should be humble. We should be careful. Because if we try to help people, and we don't really want to help them, we're just annoyed by them. They need us to help carry them. (laughs) But we don't really want to be bothered with it. Sometimes we can claim that, yeah, I worked the soccer match and I was helping people. But in reality, what happens is our method of helping people shows up on YouTube for everyone to see for a long time. Oh, hang on. My favorite moment is that guy in the green just like, well, I'm done. You know, unfortunately, I think we can claim to be ministering to people and it be just like that. Um, and so I want to call us then, uh, one last one, is to be wise. Be wise. If you go down to the end of the chapter, the end of this first speech, and there's a break every time Elihu gives a new speech that says he answered. So we see this is a break. He says, if not, listen to me, be silent, I will teach you wisdom. What Elihu is going to bring to the table is wisdom. Wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective. Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad have argued from human, humanity's perspective. Job's heart has started to drift because he's still thinking of it from a human perspective. Elihu says, no, let's look at this from God's perspective. Job says he wants to understand. Job says he wants to have clarity. Job says he wants to hear from God. Job wants wisdom, and Elihu is going to say, I'm going to limit, listen now, I'm going to limit what I say to what can be clearly known from the Word. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. I'm going to show you theological truth. I'm going to speak wisdom. So speak Humbly, speak carefully, speak wisely, speak patiently. Again, look at the end of the chapter. How do we speak to the person, not their problem? He says this, pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. Now, I love what he says in verse 32. If you have something to say, I want to hear it. He says, if you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you you now that's really important and different from what the other ones have done what Elihu says is I want a conversation with you Job and if I've said anything here that you don't understand or isn't clear or is too weighty Job I want you to talk to me talk to me Job now what's fascinating is Job doesn't interrupt him and we would wonder why not well, one answer is Job's just worn out and he's tired. And that is possible. But when we understand what Elihu, and I'm going to show you in just a moment with the kind of truth he speaks to Job, he's the first guy that has shown up with any ounce of comprehension of what Job is going through. And Job has been begging for someone to give him some truth. I think Job is silent at this point, not because Elihu is trying to silence him, I think he's silent at this point because finally somebody started to say something helpful and you just want to hear more of it. I don't, to, I don't want to cut somebody off that's saying something that's actually blessing me. And so 33, he basically says, okay, Job, if you've got nothing to say, I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep giving you some wisdom. And so speak to the person first, not the problem. Secondarily, speak to their questions. Now, one of Job's chief complaints... And his confusion is he wants to hear from God. Why is this happening to me? Why have I lost all the goods, all the possessions? Why am I covered with boils and maggots? Why has my wife abandoned me? Why are my ten kids dead? Why, 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 why? And God's not saying anything. God, I just wish you would answer. I wish you would prove why I deserve this. God, you know I don't deserve this. Why is this happening? God, I wish you would show up and say something. And at the same time, he's terrified of what God might say. Because Job recognizes that God's the one in control. You might remember even in one of his early moments, not so stellar moments, Job said, God can even change the whole, all the rules to the game to win it. If he wanted to, because he's God. And so Elihu, very first thing he wants to address is that idea. Does God speak to you, Job? Is he talking to you or is he silent to you? Now for 32 chapters, it's been easy to see God has not audibly spoke. And I think because Christians, lots of them have already read or have a general idea of the story of Job, our tendency is to say this, well, eventually God will speak. Now, here's the problem with that. Is God speaking audibly to people now? No. No. And so I'll just be very transparent. When I have been going through puzzling pain or deep sorrow, your heart wants to hear from God, and you know it's not like I'm going to walk outside, sit on my deck, and suddenly God's going to split the sky and say, Steve, let me explain to you what's going on. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened for you either, has it? And it feels a little unfair be honest with you it feels a little unfair because eventually he opens the sky and speaks to job where's my voice and i know i know i know because i'm a pastor i know i get this i'm supposed to open my bible that's how god's going to speak to me i'm just gonna be honest with you i have yet to find a verse that says how do you process through the death of your dad the death of your grandma and the terrible diagnosis for your wife that all crushes down within a month there's no verse for that is there well, like I'm cracking up my Bible, the third Ezekiel, chapter 2. Steve, this is the way it works. It's a little bit like, what? and so Job has been saying, God's not talking to me, and I think because we know the whole story of Job, and we know there comes a point where God audibly speaks to Job, that we can fall into the same kind of trap. This is what Elihu is going to argue. Actually, Job, God's been talking the whole time. And he talks to you in two ways, Job. He talks to you through your conscience, and he talks to you through your suffering. He's been speaking, Job. He hasn't been silent. This is really important to understand and to see. So first of all, let's talk about this conscience. Back in chapter 33, and I'm just going to read, because I want to read down from verse 8 for us to really see his buildup. He says, surely you have spoken in my ears. I've heard the sound of your words. You say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean. There's no iniquity. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Now, Job has said, I have got here and I don't deserve to be here. Behold, in this you're not right. I will answer you for God is greater than man. What is he saying? He's answering this question. I don't. God is unjust. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. And so verse 15, In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed, conceal pride from a man, keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the storm. Now go back to verse 15. You have these phrases, dreams, visions, deep sleep falls on a man, slumber on their beds. And we're left to wonder, is, is, is Elihu saying that's how God speaks to you is through dreams and visions? The problem is the words he uses in the Hebrew are all kinds of, of moments that are not specifically dreams and visions. It's a, that's the best way we can translate it. The question we're left with is what is he talking about? God is talking to you When? And the key to understanding when he's talking about is verse 17, to conceal pride from a man. What Elihu is arguing is this. Job, you're saying God's not talking to me. I'm telling you God is talking to you apart from your logic and reason. When does he do that? And the best answer to that is in our conscience. Now, so how do we understand our conscience? Well, we're all made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. It's amazing when you study history. There are some overwhelming moral, ethical guidelines that humanity has observed throughout its history. It's like you might remember, if those of you here a few weeks ago, we talked about the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And it was all these things your heart is tested on. The, you, you cannot argue, you cannot make an argument, any valid argument, that the Egyptian occultic culture and religious practices were in any way, shape, or form founded on Judeo-Christian ideals. They simply weren't. And yet the Egyptians thought it was wrong to steal, murder, abuse children. They thought it was wrong to assault people. They thought it was wrong to wound orphans and widows. They thought it was wrong to be unjust. They had this ethical, moral code. And you study around the world, and you know what you find? You find a a fairly consistent moral, ethical code. Where does this come from? The Bible tells us it comes from the fact that we're all made in the image of God. And Paul actually makes it really, really clear in the book of Romans, chapter 2. He says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. The Gentiles, he meant, they don't have the Ten Commandments to tell them what to do or not to do. But when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Paul's point is this. Like, even Gentiles know it's wrong to go kill somebody, and their own conscience tells them it's wrong. They know they're not supposed to do it. There's no question they're not supposed to do it. Even sociopaths who have no emotional compulsion or compassion that I shouldn't do this, they know it's wrong. That's why we find them guilty. We don't, th- we don't think it's insanity. You know you shouldn't do it. Don't do it. And this is his whole point. They know what they should do or not to do. And Elihu is telling Job, Job, has God not spoken to you in a way that's beyond your logic that has told you what's right and wrong? I think that's powerful in two ways. It's powerful because what Job has argued all along is I have a clear conscience. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I didn't say I'm perfect. I didn't say I've never sinned. I'm not saying I'm I'm, I'm God. I I, I offer sacrifices. I offer sacrifices even for my kids when I'm afraid they might have sinned. It's not that Job didn't view himself as a sinner. It's just that he understood he had not sinned in a way that deserved the pain that he was experiencing. And he's right about it. God would even affirm that. Job's suffering is not whack-a-mole for the bad things he's done. And Elihu is saying, has God not spoken that to you? The if sheer fact that Job can make the argument, I don't deserve this, stands on the authority of God speaking to him through his conscience. I mean, Job, you've made the argument all along. God knows that you're right. How does God know that you're right? Because he's affirmed this in your own heart, in your own life. What is the point from Paul in Romans about your conscience? What, how does the conscience serve you? It helps to show you your sinfulness. What is the point from Elihu? The conscience, what, is to show you your sinfulness. Verse 17, that he may turn aside from his deed. Conceal pride from a man. So it's not your own logic. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Haven't you done something and you know it's wrong? You just know it there's so many things we can do with our con- our conscience isn't always perfect paul even understood that paul when he's falsely accused, says i examined my conscience but i don't trust it god's going to reveal it at the end i don't think i'm wrong but god will reveal it at the end we can sear our conscience particularly if you're lost you can train your conscience to, to sear it as with a hot iron we understand what that is they, you know if you have nerve endings they can cauterize it they can sear it and you don't feel there anymore we can treat our conscience in such a cavalier manner that we can damage it to the point that we don't feel guilt when we should. That calls our hearts back to Hebrews where it says, exhort one another daily lest you be hardened by the deceptiveness of your sin. But he's telling Job, God speaks to our conscience and the point of the God speaking through our conscience to just show us our sinfulness. He's not saying to Job in that moment, you deserved this. But he is answering the question, is God silent? And his answer is, no, he's not. And you know he's not. This is God speaking to Job. Job knows, listen, sufferer, listen to me. Listen to me, sufferer. If you're here and you're suffering puzzling pain, it's okay that God has spoken to you in your past of your sin. What did Job do? Job Job has examined his whole childhood from a youth and said, what sin have I done for this? And is saying the sheer fact that you can do that It's God speaking to you about what's right and wrong. The sheer fact that you can sit here and say, I didn't deserve this, and Elihu doesn't disagree with him. But the sheer fact that he can do that is because of the testimony of God. But secondarily, God speaks through your suffering. Remember he said there's two things, two ways. So the first one was conscience, verse 19. Man is also, number two, also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. He's talking right to Job's suffering here. His flesh is so wasted away it cannot be seen. His bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. Elihu says God speaks through our suffering. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in a grief observed as he was processing through the death of his wife, whose name was Joy. Joy died in C.S. Lewis's world. If you want to understand, so if you haven't been, and even if you have been or are going through it, reading A Grief Observed would do your soul well. And I agree with C.S. Lewis. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, what's interesting is the triple threat club, Eliphaz, Zoph- Zophar, and Bildad, they said God is shouting in your pain how wrong you are. That's what God's saying to you. You're bad. What does Elihu say God is saying in his suffering? Verse 19 Man is rebuked with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones. So his life loads bread, his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is wasted away, can't be seen. His bones were not seen, stick out. His soul draws near the pit, his life to those who bring death. What could this shout, verse 23, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him? Wait a minute, what is he talking about here? Who could be this one in a thousand mediator that stands for him? Do you remember way back Eliphaz, one of his first speeches to Job? He said, there's no one to defend you. And remember what Job said? Job said, I wish there was someone to defend me. And then later Job says, I wish there was someone who would stand before God on my behalf. Do you know what Elihu says? God's shouting to you in your suffering. There is a one in a thousand mediator who stands on your behalf. I wonder who that could be. This is what this mediator does. He is merciful to him. He says, deliver him from going down in the pit. I have found a ransom. Wait a minute. Wait, like four-wheel, vented, drilled, disc brakes, put the brakes on and back the bus up. Elihu says God speaks in your conscience so that you know what you've done didn't deserve this. And God shouts in your suffering. And what he's shouting to you in your suffering is there's someone who stands before God on your behalf and says, I stand for him, deliver his life from the pit because I have a ransom for him you got to be kidding me. People think Elihu's bad, and what Elihu says is Jesus has shown up. That's not bad. Listen to as Jesus speaks. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. He's saying, God, give life to this man who's in death. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. Who's seen whose face here? All along, Job has said, God, would you quit looking at me so angrily? Oh, sufferer, hear me. Hear me now. Look at me. God looks upon you in your despair and he shouts with joy over you as he brings you close to him. He is not frustrated with your questions. He is not angry with you. He's not irritated by you. You are a hurt child. He knows we live in a sin-fallen world. Your suffering is imaging the future sufferings of Jesus. Your puzzling pain is not his wrath on you. He says, I love you. I love you. Come near to me. He restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right. It was repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit. My life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. We have a great high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, if you're anything like Job, and, and you are in puzzling pain you didn't deserve. But like Job, like Job, your heart began to say, God's not just in this. God God is silent to me. God is ignoring me. God must be angry with me. God is mad at me. God is looking at me with this, with this mean-filled face, uh, scowling look. Oh, this rotten Job, this Steve that I have to put up with. He's saying, no, that's not how it is. Because our high priest says, I understand why Job and Steve and any of you were tempted to say, God is silent to me. He doesn't care. And our great high priest says, I get it. I get it. You're you're wrong, but I get it. Father, I stand for him. Jesus stands for you. Elihu says he shouts in our suffering. Speaking about Christ reminds the sufferer that Jesus makes them whole eliphaz said no mediator existed elihu says yes he does you see suffering makes you realize you can't heal yourself you can't save yourself from your sin you can't ever be good enough you can't ever be right in us you're like a gerbil in a wheel oh let me do better let me do better let me do better you can't ever be better enough to be acceptable jesus shows up for you and suffering reminds you that you can't fix. you can't give yourself heart surgery you can't fix your own broken leg you can't cure yourself of cancer. You can't radiate your tumors. You, you can't take, give the right medicine. You can't heal yourself. Jesus has to heal you. And suffering reminds you Jesus is the one who makes the broken whole. Speak to the sufferer of Jesus. Because it reminds them of where their real hope is. Jesus suffered for them. Jesus weeps with them. Jesus stands on their behalf. And he brings into their life, into their stench of death, he brings life with him. Speaking about Jesus also reminds them that there's a whole cosmic war going on and there's a soul that's part of, the, part of it. Now this is fascinating to me because I think the reality is, I don't, I, don't, I don't think for one instance there was some cosmic conversation in heaven about my puzzling pain that I've experienced in my life at different seasons. But Jesus is a reminder to me that my puzzling pain is part of the victory procession of Jesus. When my heart doesn't run from Jesus, because let me tell you something, suffering reveals genuine faith, doesn't it? It does. Jesus said as much. He said, you want to find out if someone really believes? Throw them in a pot of hot water, and what comes out of their teabag is who they really are. And he says, suffering reveals it. And so the reality is when I or you or Job go through suffering and we keep going back to God, even in our confusion, but God, but God, but God, God it's got to be, you're the only one that's got to answer. God, that reveals something. And this is what it reveals. It reveals that he has taken the gift of life and crammed it into my heart. And he's put faith in me and he's put faith in you. And it's part of this cosmic war of God declaring over my soul or your soul or Job's soul, it is mine. And suddenly my suffering isn't just about me. There is this bigger purpose and this bigger picture, and the bigger purpose and the bigger picture is to show the redemptive power of God. We feel like we are falling forward in mud when we're suffering. The reality is we're much more like a victorious warrior marching forward in faith. Man, I want to be Elihu. I want to hear Elihu. More to the point, I, I want to hear what God has to say through Elihu's because that's what my heart needs. When we speak for God to the sufferer, it must be with love and truth because God is love and truth.